0: Uh, Hey, okay, let me say this, church family, as we get started tonight, I am fairly positive we will make it through what I intend to make it through tonight. But if we don't, I'm just going to give the proviso that at a certain time, I'm just going to hard stop it, dive bomb like a space capsule in the ocean, and we'll pick up next week. And so let me just give that on the front side, because I do understand uh, where we're going tonight can be... uh, can, can normally can, can mess with us. So uh, on top of your cheat sheet, there is a quote I've placed there. It comes from the very beginning of the knowledge of the holy, uh, which is a great small little book that A.W. Tozer wrote about the, the nature and character of God. And he writes and he says this, actually the first lines of the book, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively, positive, uh, positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure, or worship is base, as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Here, here is the reality. The reason we're going where we're going, we spent seven weeks looking at Scripture all under this umbrella of how do we develop a biblical worldview. We said it's going to be hard to develop a biblical worldview if we don't have a right view of Scripture because the whole idea of a biblical worldview is a worldview built from what the Bible says. And so if we've got questions, if we don't know how to interact with Scripture, we can't go there. But if, if you'll remember back with me, if you were here, uh, we said that a worldview, there's, there's 10 disciplines that fill out a worldview. <sighs> And, and not all of them are in a specific order, but the first several are, and, and that order was theology, and then philosophy, and then on down the line. And, and depending on your starting point, your theology will either determine your philosophy or your philosophy will determine your theology depending on your starting point for every worldview. And by theology, what I mean as it relates to tonight and the next several weeks, I don't mean everything you could study in a theology class. Right? There's kind of two ways we use the word theology. One would be in the idea of a systematic theology, or you go to seminary to take a theology class. You pick up a theology textbook, and, and you're going to find in there stuff that covers the doctrine of Scripture, and the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of Jesus, and the doctrine of the Spirit, and on and on and on, in all of the sum total of what we call theology. But the simple definition of theology is simply the study of God. It's the study of God. And that's really what we mean tonight, and that's what we mean by theology there in that worldview category, is what is our view of God? Who is God? What is God like? And how you and I actually believe about the the answers to those questions will always dictate how we relate to the being that we understand to be God. And so that's why it's vital we start there, and so that's where we're going tonight with, with walking into this, this series that we've called Godology, and we've simply called it that because if I just called it theology, again, most of us think the broader category, but we're trying to be specific. So when it comes to God, this is an interesting statement, and I'll throw this out, you can think it in your, que- your, your minds, but what makes Christianity distinctly true? And some might say, well, what makes Christianity distinctly true is that uh, we believe that Jesus died sacrificially. Well, so does Jehovah's Witness. What makes Christianity uh, 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 true is we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So does Mormonism. What makes Christianity true is we believe in salvation by grace. Well, so do at least in theory, some other religions. Now, what makes Christianity distinctly true? Now, don't mistake me. I don't know that any other religion puts those, all those things together like we do, but there's a reason we put all those things together, and it's this. What makes Christianity distinctly true, that the bedrock, the ground rock of what we believe, the foundation upon which everything rests, is which God we worship, our faith is nothing less than God himself, as, as one writer said. Every aspect of the gospel, creation, revelation, salvation, is only Christian insofar as it is the creation, revelation, and salvation of this God, the God of the Bible, the triune God. I could believe in the death of a man called Jesus. I could believe in his bodily resurrection. I could even believe in a salvation by grace alone. But if I do not believe in this God, then quite simply, I am not a Christian. And so, because the Christian God is triune, the Trinity is the governing center of all Christian belief. It is the truth that shapes and beautifies all others. So tonight, we are starting with, as we look at God, we're, start, we're diving in the deep end. We're going to start with the Trinity. Because fundamentally, the God we believe in, in fact, if you were, if I were to pull up the worldview chart of the, of the six primary worldviews today and their views on theology, you will notice that Islam as a worldview is monotheistic. So is Judaism. We are not monotheists. We are Trinitarian monotheists. We believe in one God. Three persons, Trinity and Unity. And this this becomes hard because we naturally try to jump into other spots. And I, I want to come at it from a little bit of a different spot. And there's a great little book. I just even looked it up on Amazon. If you order within the next five hours and twenty minutes, it'll show up tomorrow. <laughs> it's currently eleven ninety nine, free Prime delivery if you remember. But it's called Delighting in the Trinity. Delighting in the Trinity. It's about a hundred pages long, and it's it's one of the best ways of unpacking in the Trinity. And part of part of the author's point is that today when we throw out the Trinity, it's like, ooh, I so don't understand it. I wish we didn't have to deal with that part of God. And, and that's not how it always was taught in church. And that there's a direct correlation in when churches began to not teach and hone in on the doctrine of the Trinity and when a lot of the problems we see in modern day American Christianity, right or wrong, began to creep up. So we're going to go in now. Two facts about God you got to understand. They're there on uh, they're there on your uh, your cheat sheet. Is that God is knowable? It's possible for us to know God, but there's two facts we need to understand about that. Psalm 139: Such knowledge is too wonderful for me; it is too high, I cannot attain it. Psalm 154, verse, oh, sorry, 145, verse 3 Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 147, verse 5 Great is our Lord, abundant in strength, his understanding is infinite. And then if you flip all the way over to Romans and you look in chapter 11 at the very end, Verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches, both of wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of our Lord or who has become his counselor or who is the first given to him that, that it might be paid back? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Here is the reality. God is able to be known and you and I will never know him fully. In fact, fathom this, church family, we will spend all eternity learning more of who He is and never come to the end of learning. We cannot fully grasp all of who God is. And this should not trouble us because if we could completely and totally grasp all of who God is, pretty sure He's not God. Because then my mind would be greater than the sum total of God's being. But though God is... Not able to be known fully, he is able to be known truly, personally, intimately. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John 17. He's praying to the Father, this is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jeremiah 9:23 and 24, speaking about the New covenant or, or heading in that, in that direction, God says, "Let the one who boasts boast in this that they understand and know me." Here is the reality. We cannot ever know God fully, but God delights for us to know Him truly, personally, intimately. God desires to be known. So understand as we walk into this aspect of the Trinity, the Trinity is not intended to be some aspect of God that just makes us want to run away and hide in fear because we can't fully grasp it. I'll give you a spoiler alert. We can't fully grasp the Trinity because not one of us is Trinity. Every one of us is a mono being. I'm Wes. I'm one person, one being. That's it. One. Uno. Ein. Ein. Whatever other language you know one in, that's it for me. <laughs> I can read it in Greek, but I, I don't know that I could say it off the top of my head. Um, so we can't fully. But even in trying to understand the Trinity, God does want us to understand what can be understood truly, personally, intimately, because that is who He is. So the Trinity is a mystery, But it's a mystery in the sense of you and I can't grasp all of it. It's not a mystery in the sense of the fact that we can't grasp any of it. There is truth there to be understood. And so what I want to try to do tonight is that we've got to think about God, not as God in our image, but God as Scripture says about Him. God in our image is going to look like us, think like us, feel like us, be one like us. That's a God like Allah, or name uh, one of the many Hindu gods. Instead, we are going to start with Scripture, and when you start with Scripture, Scripture is going to point you to Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, I am God, the Father is God, and the Spirit we send is God, and you end up with a triune God. There on your paper, you'll see the definition for Trinity. Trinity is not a word. This is kind of a, a popular thing in terms of critics of scripture and Christianity. Well, you your Trinity, it's not in the Bible. Well, yeah, the word Trinity is not in the Bible because the word Trinity is a description of what's in the Bible. No different than a lot of other things that we use to describe what we see in the Bible. I got news for you. The word Christology is not in the Bible. Or pneumatology or ecclesiology. They're words that describe things we see in the Bible. Trinity simply means three in oneness. triunity. unity. So what does the Trinity look like? Well, if you, you, can, you can see some of the main scriptures on your page. There's a few others I may use. You can try to keep up, but because of the, what we've got to cover, I'm not going to just go slow, and I apologize for that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, in fact, if you are a Jew to this day, this is the Shema, this is the key of your faith. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says this, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That passage says, hear, hear, hear this, Israel, the Lord your God is one. One. Now, he's one in the sense of God is a monotheistic God, not a polytheistic God. God is one being, one being. We're not three beings. He's one being. It's not God, and then there's totally separate and completely different and a different being, Jesus, and then another completely different, in which case we've got three different gods, that's not, God is one God. And by the way, that's a huge part. If you ever get the opportunity to minister to, uh, to a Hindu and share the gospel, the key ministering to a Hindu is not getting them to believe in Jesus as God. It's Jesus as only God because in the Hindu faith, there are thousands upon thousands of gods, so it's okay to add more. That's the kind of thing we're addressing. But even beyond that, it's even beyond just a statement of monotheism versus polytheism. What's being stated here is is Israel, the Lord your God, the God who has called you, who who has sought you out, who has made you, He is the one God. It's not even polytheism or monotheism. It is God is God. No one else who claims to be God is. And that's the statement here. There is one God, single, one God. The emphasis is, 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 is on the unmatched and unique deity of the one we call God. Now, 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 8, verse 4, "...therefore, uh, concerning eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one." So here in the New Testament, Paul, who knows clearly, as we'll see in a minute, the triune God, he still uses the same language. So this language is not calling our God one is not problematic because our God is one. There's not many gods. There's one God, our God. And even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as many as there are gods and as many lords yet for us, there is but one God, the father from whom all things and we exist for him, in one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all are things, and we exist through him. And notice there, Paul has no tension of saying, there is one God, Father Jesus, and he treats them both distinct and different, but one God. There is one God. James 2.19 makes this statement. I miss my old uh, little thumb things. Those made it really useful, but that Bible fell apart. Uh, James 2, 19 says this, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So you see all throughout scripture, there is an affirmation that there is one right, true God. One, period. But we also see this, that that one God is three persons. And we're very specific with this language, one God, three persons, one God, three persons. Hebrews chapter one, where we're going a second, says that Jesus is the perfect and final revelation of God to man. So if you say there's one God, that's great, pastor, one God. Where's the first place I should start to understand God? Jesus. That's the Bible's answer. Jesus. Jesus is, if you want to know what is God like? Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus is the perfect revelation of God to man. So it would behoove us then to ask the question, how does Jesus reveal God? Well, think about a place like Matthew chapter six. So do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Later on in chapter six, Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow, they do not reap, or do not reap. they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. But if God so clothes the grass of the field alive today, tomorrow in the furnace, how much more will he not close you? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Well, first off, Jesus does point to God, and the person of the Trinity Jesus points to is Father. first person of the Trinity, father. By first person, I don't mean first in like order of appearance. I just mean in order of how we're walking through it. The father, the father. We also see the son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one makes this statement. And I I, I left a little lengthy definition stuff on your on your, uh, on your, on your cheat sheet, just in case you come across uh, Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, because they get out and talk around, just gave you a little extra word power help, especially with Jesus being fully God. Hebrews chapter one says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and prophets in many portions and, and in many ways in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. So look what that already tells us. It says that God now has spoken to us finally through His Son, and that that Son is the heir, the rightful inheritor, owner of all things, and that that Son was at minimum there before all things existed because that Son was the one that the Father used to create it all. And he is the radiance of his glory. Radiance is, is literally, he is the beam of light coming out of the sun, but not a beam of light from the sun, the beam of glory from his glory. And he is the exact representation. Of his nature, that exact representation. He is the exact reproduction. Now, when you hear reproduction, it's not meant in the sense like you and I do of last week we had reproductions of old Bibles. Those aren't the actual old Bibles, those are reproductions. That's how we think. The biblical word is the idea of he is, he, he is, the, he, he is, like he's the exact, he's like the, the, the real thing of His nature, of His essence, of His substance, that which something truly is. So here we see all of a sudden in Hebrews 1 that the Father and the Son are different. The Son has ownership over all things. The Son created all things. The Son is the outward radiance of glory. He, he is God's glory, and He is the exact impression of the nature of God. Philippians chapter 2. No one should be familiar with that passage. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2 says this. Have this attitude in yourselves in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, form being that word which means that which, which reflects fully and truly outwardly what one is in reality. Meaning that Jesus being in the form of God means that Jesus outwardly looks like God because he is actually in his essence God. And the one who is existing, present, meaning the one who has always existed as God. There's never been a time when Jesus has not been the form of God because Jesus is always God. He did not count equality with God equality, having the same value, the same measure, the same, and understand the reality of this. Paul would have been a die-hard, monotheistic, no-Trinity Jew, who in his encounter with Christ has such a reversal of everything that he now understands the whole Old Testament points to not a monotheistic God, but a triune monotheistic God. And he has no qualms about saying Jesus is God, He's always been God. He always will be God. He is God. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. speaking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Jesus. Because as we'll see in later weeks, what is God made of? Well, the only word we throw to it is spirit because God isn't made of anything. God is God. So technically God is invisible. Yet Jesus God took on flesh. You wanna know what God looks like? Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now you and I read that and some will try to twist it and say oh he's the firstborn meaning he's the first created being. That that's that may work for English. That's not what it meant in Greek. It meant he's the one who has ownership over it all. You know who gets the inheritance? Jesus. He's the firstborn For by him, all things were created. Kind of hard to be the first creation if you're the one who does all the creating. By the way, you notice it says all things created, both in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominion, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. That doesn't just mean all of the created universe, physical universe Jesus created. It means every angel, every demon, every part of the unseen realm, heaven, that part we can't see, all of it, Jesus. Everything that exists in existence, Jesus made. Which you know what that means? For him to make everything that exists in existence, it means he has to exist outside of that and before that and not made up of anything from that. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. In the verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. By fullness, we mean the fullness of the Godhead, of God. John 1, we won't flip there, but John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word is God. And that Word was with God um, when it states that it's literally a, an idiom meaning face-to-face, meaning that the one who is the Word, who is God, is also unique from the Father because they're face-to-face. Now, obviously, understand it's, it's an anthropomorphism because if God is invisible, God is Spirit, God doesn't have a face. But it's driving out this idea of distinct, one God, one being, but three distinct persons. But you say, well, that's, that's great, Wes, but that's all the stuff that John and Paul and whoever you want to argue wrote Hebrews said, Jesus didn't claim that. Oh, well, you'll see. I I won't try to turn to them all. Mark 2 chapter 5, Jesus says that he has the authority and power to forgive sin. And what's the response of the people? Only God has that authority. And Jesus winks and goes, yep. (laughs) In Matthew 25, Jesus claims to have authority to judge the world. Who is the only one who has authority to judge the world? God. In Mark 2, 27 through 28, Jesus claims to have authority over the Sabbath. Who is the one who created the Sabbath day and instituted the Sabbath day? God. So to claim authority over the Sabbath means I am God. In John chapter 10, Jesus claims to be one with the Father. In John 14, Jesus says uh, that the one who sees him has seen the Father. Hey, Jesus, we want to see God. Great, look at me because I'm God. In John 8, 58, one of my favorite deals whenever he says, your father Abraham wanted to see me. And the Pharisees being sarcastic were like, you're not even 50. How are you as old as Abraham, you know, a couple thousand years ago? And I love Jesus' statement because it's, it's wild on so many levels. I tell you, before Abraham was, past tense, I am. I am here presently in front of you, but I am also there presently. But even more than that, when he says, I am, they knew exactly what that meant. What is God's personal name? I am. What did Jesus just say? I tell you, I am. I'm God. And that's why then they get so hacked off. There, you see examples of the same thing of the I am statements in John. We've got a wonderful devotion set for you to give out Sunday for next week with those. Um, we see in, in, in Matthew 26, Jesus accepts the charge that he has claimed to be divine. The way that Jesus speaks of the Old Testament, you notice that Jesus doesn't speak like the prophets. The prophets say, thus says the Lord. Jesus says, I tell you. There's a big difference there. Jesus, in every way, claimed to be God because he's God. Okay, great. So far, we're we're two for two. But you said three persons. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, and sometimes uh, sometimes uh, theologians have called the Holy Spirit the 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 background player, if you will, the one the 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 god the person of the Godhead who who hides in the shadows from the standpoint of the way he operates, but that doesn't mean that scripture's not clear. In fact, one of the greatest, don't forget when I taught it to students, Acts chapter five, if you know the story, the churches in Acts they're 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 being unbelievably generous and they're and many are selling their possessions and coming and giving the apostles the, mo- the money so that the apostles can can help take care of other people. There's this unbelievable voluntary generosity as the spirit Moves, and then you've got Ananias and Sapphira, and they go and they 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 sell uh, they sell a piece of land. They say they sold more than they sold it for. And then they give them, and, and you know the story goes. And Ananias comes in, and, and Peter says, "Why have you lied to the Spirit?" Boom, drops dead, and they take him out. And as soon as they finish burying him, the wife comes in, and he goes, "Why have you lied to the Spirit?" And she lied. Boom, you know, there's whole deal. But here's the thing. When Peter says to them, you have lied to the Spirit, he equates the Spirit on the same level as God. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a the price, therefore glorify God in your body. The fact that you your body, our bodies, are the temple of the Holy Spirit is equated with being a dwelling place for God. The Spirit is placed on the same level as God. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, for God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man in him? No one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Well, here's the deal. We've just said we will never be able to understand all the thoughts of God because we're not God. So if the Holy Spirit can understand every thought of God, it means he possesses all knowledge, which by default makes him God. He has omniscience, all knowledge. We see in places like Romans chapter 15, verse 19. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, that the Spirit is the power which brings miracles. We see in John 16 that the Spirit brings conviction of sin. We see in John chapter 3 and Titus chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates a person at salvation, all acts of power that only belong to God. We see in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14... How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Did you know it said eternal spirit? Well, this means the spirit has no beginning or end, just like God we see in Romans, chapter, in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is involved in raising Jesus from dead. Only God can raise God from the dead. We see in places like 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 1 that the, whole, that the scriptures, the word of God, were written by the Holy Spirit. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that the Holy Spirit is the one who in his sovereignty decides what spiritual gifts you and I get that Paul then says in Ephesians 4, Jesus is part of. Holy Spirit is God. We see in places like Matthew 28, the Great Commission go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God. Here's what we see one God three persons, three persons who are co-eternal. They have always existed. Three persons who are co-equal, even though we have the title of father, son, and spirit. And even though there seems, or not seems, but in the act of creation and redemption, there is, there is a, a voluntary submission there. We see that they are all equal. One of them, the father is not more God than the son, and the son is not more God than the spirit. They are all fully God, We see that they are distinct. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The Father's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father, and the Spirit's not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit. We see that all three are united. They're united as one being. They're united and in harmony in terms of their will, their thought. We see that they are codependent, and that they are who they are, and they are together, and they always work together. They are in total harmony, and we see this in Scripture now, some will come up with different explanations, but I find them dissatisfactory for this. We see it right off the back in the very beginning of the Bible. Then God said, singular, let us, plural, make man in our image. Some have said it's this idea of a plural of majesty. Well, that's, that's not really found in the Hebrew Old Testament, because we don't see it used with any of the other Hebrew kings. Some will say, well, God is speaking to the angels. Here's the problem with that. You and I aren't made in the image of the angels. And if we were somehow sharing the image of the angels, that stinks for us because it says in Scripture, we have it better than the angels. Who is the us, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? What does he say in Isaiah chapter 6? whom shall I send? Who will go for us? One God, three persons in unity. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus' baptism. What do we see in Jesus' baptism? Sorry, Matthew chapter three, Jesus arrived from the Galilee. John tried to prevent him. Jesus answered, per, per, uh, permit it. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. The heavens were open. He saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lightning on him. And a voice from the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I have well pleased. Trinity, father speaking, spirit descending, Jesus coming out of the water. We see in Ephesians chapter three, Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, verse 16, that He would grant you according the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your heart. We see even in Paul's prayers, we see all people of the Trinity, but we can broaden out bigger. In the book of Romans, we see the judgment of God upon the, the, the sinfulness of man. We see justification of, of, of individuals through faith in Christ, which allows us to live life in the Spirit the Gospel of John references all of the Trinity throughout. There is complete unity in the being of God, in the, in the triune Godhead. There is unity of will, unity of work, and the best word we can use is harmony, which means God is one God, one being. He is three per- distinct persons. Each person is fully God. No person is the other. And this would be the point where if I was a great preacher, I would say, and let me give you an illustration, church family. And I would have something on the screens, or a whiteboard, and i draw it for you, except here's the problem. There is no illustration in all of nature that can reflect the Trinity. Everyone breaks down. If you want to say, well, well what about, what about, Pastor, what about water? Water it's one substance, but it can exist in three different forms, ice, liquid, or vapor. Yeah, except that's heresy. It's called modalism, where God is one God who just appears three different ways. Because your water that appears in those different ways—it's not distinct water; it's the same water. Well, what about what about the sun? The sun is a star, and it produces light and you feel heat. Yeah, that's also heresy. It's called Arianism, where they said that Christ and the Holy Spirits are cre- and the Holy Spirit are creation of the Father, just like the heat and the light are not the star but creations of the star. What about the famous St. Patrick, the three-leafed clover? Well, that's called partialism. The Father, Son, and Spirit are just three different parts of God, and if you separate them, they'd only be a third of God. There is no natural illustration for the Trinity, which is why we've got to allow that to go out of our minds. Don't think of, and we're doing great on time, Because I'm about to help us, how do we think of the Trinity? Let go of all natural illustrations, because not one of them allows you to understand the Trinity. All of them take us to places of heresy when carried out. And this should not trouble us, because if God is unique, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That means holy, holy, holy is the Father, holy, holy, holy is the Son, holy, holy, holy is the Spirit. And holiness is not just a reference to purity without sin. Holiness, the idea of holiness is that I am completely unique and distinct and separated. For God to be flawlessly holy means he is unique, distinct, and separated. He is not creation at all. Which means there is nothing in creation. If part of what makes God unique at its core is that God is triune, then that means there is nothing in all creation creation, seen or unseen, physical or spiritual, that's Trinity, which is why you can't find an illustration for the Trinity in any of it. So far from being a concern, it's a further proof that God is one God, three persons. God in Trinity, Trinity in unity. So what's the best way to try to then fathom and picture... To picture the Trinity. Well, the best way to do it is relationally and to look at who are, who are the members of the Trinity. Let's start uh, with, with who, who do we understand God to be? And, and it's fascinating stuff. Is God fundamentally creator? No, because if fundamentally, if the core of who God is, is creator, then the only way for him to be God is for creation to exist, which makes his Godhood dependent upon us being created. Well, God's fundamentally power. He's almighty. No, because for God to fundamentally be power means he's dependent upon having something to exert power on. Well, God is fundamentally about the rules. Well, no, because that means the best shot you and I have is just to treat us as if we kept the rules, but that doesn't enable us to love him. Who do we understand God to be? Well, again, let's go back. Who does Jesus show God to be? Father. Father. He shows God to be Father. So who is God? Who is God before anything ever exists? He's Father. And do you know what God the Father's doing? Loving the Son through the Spirit. What's the Son doing? Loving the Father back? In perfect community, in perfect fellowship, in perfect harmony, in perfect love and perfect unity. And all of a sudden, when we begin to think this way and see, well, wait a minute, the the chief picture of of God is is as father. And when we see the father, we we realize what it, it has to then all of a sudden change our definition of how we view a father. See, if our struggle with the father is that we take our view of an earthly father and imprint it upon God, and we gotta flip that. Let what it means that God is father dictate what it means for me to be a father. And what do we see about God as Father? That God, what is God doing? He is an outgoing God. The love of God is something that God sends out. He is loving the Son. He is sending out. He is outgoing. He is not ingoing. He is outgoing. And the Son reflects the Father. He receives the love and reflects the love back. And the Spirit provides the fellowship. Isn't it interesting, actually, just a side note? The word for fellowship, koinonia, we're told that that fellowship only happens in the church from the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who provides the fellowship. So instead of trying to figure out an analogy, we start with Father, Son, and Spirit. Who are they? What are they doing? The Father has always been the Father. The Son has always been the Son. The Spirit's always been the Spirit. The Father's always been loving the Son. The Son's always been reflecting the Father's love and glory back. And it's all, and the Spirit brings. Which means this, when God decided to make you and me in his image, it's not because he was lonely. It's not because he lacked glory. It's not because he needed praise. For a triune God lacks nothing. But if God is truly Father, Son, and Spirit, then the primary reason for the creation of people in his image is the overwhelming joy that God gets to create objects of love that they could cherish and relish his love forever in right relationship. What is the primary reason for you and I to be created if God is Trinity? The overwhelming, outgoing love of God. Which means what is the primary aim inside of our relationship? Exactly what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with the entirety of your being and John fleshes it out further. We only love, why? Because he first loved us. You and I are creation of love. We see the Trinity in creation. The Father speaks the words of the universe into being. The Son carries out those words and brings it into being. We see the Spirit sustaining God's presence in creation and moving among creation. We see it in redemption, The Father planned the redemption. The Father sent the Son. We see the Son submitting to the Father voluntarily. He obeys the Father. He dies for our sin. He bears the Father's wrath. He satisfies. He makes propitiation for us. We see the Spirit applies redemption to us. He dwells in us. He fills us. He seals us. He's the one who brings salvation to completion in us. Which means this, church family... If God isn't triune, you and I can't be saved. Because if God is only one God who appears in three different, think about that modalism. That goes back to water, you know, the water analogy. If God is one God who appears three different ways, and does that mean that? How's God pull that off? I'm going to appear as the Son on the cross. Okay, well, who's who's then dumping the wrath of God on the Son? Is he just moving like the flash? faster than the speed of light going back and forth? Because Hebrews chapter 9 talks about that Jesus comes in and he offers his blood through the Spirit to the Father. You can't have that happen if God is not one being, but three persons. In fact, how can you and I pray to the Father through salvation in Christ by the Spirit if he's not three persons? If he's only one, if he's only one person, it can't happen. And if those persons aren't fully God, then they don't have the full power of God. It means Jesus only died; his, own, his death's only a third good. But yet, this is what we see, and there is a movement today, and it's it's not new. Uh, it's it's. I mean, ultimately, we saw it back uh, back earlier in the in the history of our country with the movement to a Unitarian church, as opposed to Trinitarian, but. But there is a movement today. I've not done a lot of research, but just giving you a heads up, I've noticed a lot of pastors in more more urban areas and metropolitan areas are getting asked questions about it. But the oneness movement, which all I can take from that is somewhere in Christian theology, there is a movement to try to make God one. And as by one, we mean not one being, but one person. That's heresy. And I'll give you an example. There was, I'll never forget... um, Anybody know the song, The Audience of One? Christian song, about 25 years ago on the radio, Big Daddy Weave. The song, To My Audience of One. It's all about living lives. It's To My Audience of One. You are Father and you are Son. As your spirit flows free, let it find within me a heart that beats to praise you. It's a really pretty song. Good. I remember hearing it on the radio. Dad and I pulled up to the barber. And dad said, oh yeah, this is the heresy song. And I said, what? (laughs) But did anybody catch it? I just told you heresy. Did anybody catch it? What I just told you, the lyrics from the song? As your spirit flows free, let it find within me. The spirit is not an it. He is he. He is God. Which is why when the Holy Spirit tells you and I to share the gospel and we don't, we are defying God. God. When the Holy Spirit moves in our heart to pray for someone and we don't, we are defying God. When the Holy Spirit empowers us to say no to sin and temptation, we are having the very power of God. But yet that is a top Billboard's Charts Christian song. I don't know if Big Daddy Weaver, heretical or not, but for the sake of our, at minimum, for the sake of poetic artistry, we lowered the divinity of the Spirit. So here's beautiful application real quick. The only possible will be saved by a triune God. A triune God redefines all of our understanding of marriage roles, right? Husbands, you get it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. It's pretty easy to figure out that one. Hard to do it. Pretty easy to figure out. But understand this. Wives, when you live out the command to submit to the leadership of your husband, You are not doing that arbitrarily, but as one who is co-equal in the image of God, co-equal in value, co-equal in worth, you are voluntarily submitting to a role for a greater purpose, just like one who is co-equally God, co-eternally God, voluntarily submitted to the Father to come and die on the cross for our sins. When I marry young couples, I make sure they know, husband, you will have the opportunity to mirror and picture the, the, the love of Christ on the cross. Wife, you will have the opportunity to, to, to mirror and picture the humble submission of Christ on the cross, both of which are necessary for us to be saved. It redefines our understandings of even the roles in, in marriage. It, it helps us understand when scripture says, God is love. I can really be loved. God can really be driven to completely and totally and fully love me and it not be all about me. Because when you realize that the good, great, powerful, triune God his aim in creating the world was was out of love, was so that I would know him and and, and enjoy him and and fellowship with him wherever. When all of a sudden that fills up our mind, when the view of the triune God fills up our minds, all of a sudden we realize, wow, how incredible to know that I am loved as a creation and child of God. And it's all about him, wow, he's glorious. Instead of either saying, well, because I know people who would say that Jesus on the cross wasn't thinking about you and I and his love. It was all about the glory of the Father. And part of that is a reaction to, well, Jesus loves me. Makes me feel good. Me, me, me. But that's a dangerous reaction. Absolutely, Jesus died on the cross in love for the Father and for his glory. But Jesus also on the cross died out of love for you and I. Both are clear in scripture. And when you hold both pillars and you hold it rightly, you realize how incredible that a God who is beyond our full comprehension out of the sheer delight and pleasure of his love, delighted to make you and me. I mean, just think Psalm 139. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It brought God joy, brings God joy to make you and me. It brings God joy to save you and me. It brings God joy for you and I to bask in the fullness of his love, which also helps us understand what sin is. Because the only right response to that kind of love is the response the Son has always given the Father to reciprocate that love in glory, which redefines what sin is. Sin is to see that love and reject it for self-love, which makes any sin all the more heinous when you realize the glory and love of God the Athanasian Creed on the back of your your cheat sheet, that is the statement in church history where because of various heresies like modalism and Arianism, the church pastors were were led to to make a statement looking at not creating the Trinity, but looking at what scripture says and trying to help people understand. And this is what they write. The Catholic faith is this, not Catholic as Roman Catholic, Catholic in the literal definition of the word, the one true faith for all time and people, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity and unity. And in this Trinity, no one is before or after another co-eternal. No one is greater or less than another, co-equal, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, the unity and the Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshiped. He, therefore, that will be saved must think thus of the Trinity. This is the Trinity. There are things we can understand. We should understand what we can. But you go, but pastor, I don't understand the dog. Great, neither do I, because God is that much beyond and greater than us, and I'm okay with that because I will spend all eternity looking that God in the face, growing ever deeper in my love for him as I experience the fullness of his love for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Just what I realize anytime I I walk through this, and even in me, it's, I I wish we could, I, I could give something concrete and everybody goes, oh, we understand all of it, but Lord, oh, how great we don't understand all of you because we all in this room, if we're honest, know for sure we're not God. And I am grateful that Buddha is not God, that Allah is not God. I'm grateful that Baal is not God, or Zeus, or Poseidon, but that you are God. Jesus, I am grateful that you have shown us who God is that you as God became our sin on the cross and bore the full wrath of God on our behalf, on my behalf. That Holy Spirit, you have convicted me of my sin. You have wooed me and pulled me and that Jesus, because you were risen, when there was a cry out that said, Jesus, save me, you said, here I come. And Holy Spirit, you redeemed me, you regenerated me, you filled me, you sealed me. And Lord, may we look forward with delight to the day when we will see you because you make your dwelling place with us forever. And oh to no, eternity cannot be boring because we will never come to the end of you. Jesus, may we be filled with awe and wonder and love for you. It's in your name we pray, amen.